Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm Adam Elwanger, and you have probably, if you pay attention to issues in higher ed, seen my guest today in a number of outlets in the past few weeks. She is former faculty faculty director of the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education at De Anza Community College. Uh, she has worked extensively with the Los Angeles Unified School District. She established a network to get national board certification for minority teachers, veteran of urban schools, years of experience in teacher training, Microsoft Technology Enriched Instruction Faculty Fellow, and she sits on the board of directors at Free Bre- Free Black Thought. If you have uh, been a listener of this podcast, you may have heard us talk with um, Eric Smith, a another member of that organization, a co-founder. And most recently, uh, Dr. Tavia Lee, who goes just by Lee, is my guest today. She's been on Tucker Carlson. She Her article today explaining her ordeal was on the Influential Compact Magazine's website. Um, and she has quite a, to- a story to tell. So Lee, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Adam, for having me on. It's an honor to be here. So tell us a little bit. Uh, it, it seems to me I've talked with you, I think, twice now. And it seems to me you're somebody who's who your real passion is education. And so just in case any students are watching, I like to ask everybody in different disciplines. How did you find this? Where did this passion come from? How was it developed? And what were your experiences in the early years as you followed it down this path? Hmm. So, Adam, uh, I am a lifelong teacher and educator. Um, when people ask me how long I've been teaching, I usually tell them since I was in elementary school, because literally, you know, um, I was in a gifted and talented program uh, and they didn't know what to do with us. So we spent a lot of time playing Oregon Trail and being used as peer tutors. Um, and so, you know, and that's where like my passion for um, you know, working with, learning with, and like being a co-learner basically came from. And that kind of stuck with me, like that early elementary school experience um, of viewing myself um, not as like a peer above, but like a peer co-learner um, just stuck with me throughout even my formal education. Um, you know, as I graduated and got into teaching formally um, with the Los Angeles Unified School District, um, you know, even in those spaces, uh, multiple times making like technology uh, based trainings for teachers. And then later on, you know, as I was working with gifted English language learners, um, this was during Prop 209 in California. So uh, they this was an English only movement. And some of the teachers thought that if students were gifted, they couldn't possibly uh, and not proficient in English, they couldn't possibly be gifted. Um, and so I had to help break down those misunderstandings and help people better understand, you know, what is giftedness? It's neurodiversity. There's specific social and emotional um, and learning, you know, um, academic needs that gifted students have. And so I did multiple trainings around that. Um, I also developed a civic education program um, that I was really thankful to have it recognized by the um, Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education. Uh, they actually made a proclamation uh, for me, recognizing the positive impact that I had on students and communities. Um, and this was just, you know, work involving community panels. We did voter registration drives. 
Um, we did a lot of just community outreach um, uh, from middle school students working with the adults in the community and, and creating spaces where we could all learn together. Um, so this is just, I've always taken a inquiry-based approach, um, an approach that, you know, seeks to center dialogue, um, uh, deeper understanding, reflection, and reflective learning. Um, and, you know, throughout the years, as I developed many workshops on the topics of diversity and inclusion and anti-racism and, you know, equity and equality is how I say it, not just one or the other. I, I think they belong together. Um, it, it, this was just kind of a culmination of my, of my life work to find this position at De Anza. Um, you know, I was a dual enrollment student at a California community college when I was in middle school and, uh, high school. I actually took so many credits that I was able to graduate from high school two years early at my, from my local community college. So getting this position, a tenure track, you know, in a California community college, it was like, my life coming full circle, you know, when people ask me, why did you say it was your dream job? It really was. It was like all the things that I had worked towards and done, you know, on a small scale. Here was an opportunity, uh, as the job description said, to lead an institution-wide transformation and a higher education institution, um, you know, not just a small teacher ed program or, you know, not just a um, middle school classroom. Like this was a community college, you know, um, uh, college system, institution-wide. So that's why I say it was my dream job, not not for other reasons. It was like, just personally for me, it was like it was, things were coming full circle for me. Wow. And and at the moment, it seems that you uh, won this job uh, in, I, it's got a long title. It's not the usual DEI one. It's the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education. It sounds to me that at the moment that you had won this job, that you found that although they had hired you, perhaps to serve as a counterbalance to some of the more extreme views that had been um, propagated in that office, that very quickly they kind of turned on that, or at least the staff of that office did, and you faced a lot of resistance um, in terms of articulating a vision that was more genuinely inclusive, that doesn't, um, I guess, simply understand DEI as sort of uh, progressive leftism in action. Um, so I'm going to read you a quote from your, um, um, your, your compact magazine article. And of course, you were ultimately fired. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, what that was for. But your quote was this. My crime at De Anza was running afoul of the tenets of critical social justice, a worldview that understands knowledge as relative and tied to unequal identity-based power dynamics that must be exposed and dismantled. This, I came to recognize, was the unofficial but strictly enforced ideological orthodoxy of De Anza, as it is at many other institutions. And that really resonated with me because I think you hit it exactly. It is the unofficial but strictly enforced ideological orthodoxy at De Anza. What were the signs during your time at that university that it was, in fact, something that approached the level of of um, sort of orthodoxy that was in, unquestionable, that couldn't be resisted? 
Yes. Um, this, this started to take place really early on, um, Adam, um, you know, uh, with my needs assessment conversations, I did over 60 hours of like talking and having conversations with staff, faculty, uh, administrators. Um, and, you know, they did warn me, like, this is a place, you know, where uh, multiple people, so it became like a theme in those conversations. They said, you know, this is a place where um, we don't really talk about different ideas. Um, and I didn't know what they, what the people were meaning, you know, but I've noted it to myself. Okay. Like this has been mentioned again. We're not talking about different ideas. We're not open to them. Um, and I, I never double clicked that or double, you know, I, I was just kind of like, Hmm. And I kept hearing the word woke being mentioned with my office. And, and that's such a heavy uh, word um, that has so many different meanings that I would always ask people, what do you mean by that? And they would keep mentioning, um, making faculty feel uncomfortable, um, accusing them of being racist, calling out. Uh, those were all what people would mean when they said, you know, that the office that I was in um, was was taking an approach that was too woke. That's how they define it, you know, not like something I put upon people. And that was even mentioned in the hiring process. Um, so when did it first start to uh, become clear to me uh, what these people were meaning in my needs assessment conversations? I would say, you know, um, within the initial weeks, you know, um, as I met with my office mates and team, you know, sitting together and trying to, you know, um, share a Google Doc and, and set agenda, that led to me getting accused of, of being a white speaking and white explaining, um, being transactional, supporting white supremacy. Those are statements that were made to me um, by one of my office mates. And, you know, Can we pause I, right there for just a yes. second, because because Eric Smith said something similar and he's gone through something similar. Mm -hmm. He is a black man. You, um, it seems, at least according to your compact article, identify as a black woman. I think that my brain would melt if I was a black person and somebody said I, that I was associated with white supremacy. Like, how do you, how do you not laugh when somebody says that? I mean, seriously, I think um, they would either laugh in their face or get very, very angry very quickly. So how do you respond to that? You know, when this happened, this was during a team meeting and we're a small team, um, you know, of like three to four people. Um, when the person said that, Adam, everybody else, and we're on Zoom, in the Zoom grid, right? They had these like smug looks on their face, like get her, you know? And, and the way it felt, I was like, this doesn't feel good. Like, it was like, what? You know, I, no one had in my whole life ever um, called me, said white speaking. White. At first, I didn't know what that meant. I had never heard those terms. And then to say you're supporting white supremacy. Um, I grew up in the Central Valley here in California. I'm a California native. But Central Valley is a little bit different than other places in California, um, I grew, I was born in Stockton. I grew up in a place called Lodi, very small town. I had actually known, had encounter with, um, and seen actual members of the KKK, um, actual neo-Nazis. And so that term white supremacy, that's what I associated with that. And that's a terrible thing to say to anyone, you know? And so when that person said it, my response wasn't like laughter or, or anger. I was actually really hurt. And the way they were, the the teammates were looking, you know, when he said, when the person said this, um, I said to them, I said, you know what? I'm new here. And I said, and I've never so far here 
called you any names or made any judgments to you. I said, what you just said right now to me, that hurts me. I said, please don't call me any names or, you know, make any statements like that to me because, and I told them where I'm from, white supremacy means the KKK and, you know, um, neo-Nazi people. And that's not me. I said, please don't call me names. I haven't called you name. My team and that person then looked at me as though I had offended them by saying, please don't say that to me. Um, And they began to act as though I had, I was offensive to them, you know, and that's why I I started seeking supports from my supervising dean. And I told them about what happened. And I said, this is really um, not okay. I said, maybe our team um, needs some help. Uh, navigating a new team member because I learned in my my needs assessment conversations that my office hadn't had a director for about five years. And even my team had told me, you know, so that's why I was trying to come in and see how were they surviving? How were they doing things um, without assuming a lot? And so I told uh, my supervisor, Dean, you know, normally I would be the person who would facilitate a courageous conversation and so forth. But I said, but in this instance, I'm the target and I... (laughs) I'm the person, right, who's been called a white supremacist. And I I said, so I need you to please bring in someone to talk about, you know, um, how do we communicate in a non-hostile, non-violent way? Because to me, that was a very violent way of communicating with someone. And how do we incorporate a new team member? Um, That was never provided, that support. To this day, has never been provided. Um, and the solution from the supervising dean, they said, I asked that person to apologize to you. That was the only solution that was offered. And that person never apologized to me, Adam. Actually, they they ramped up their efforts to show people, you know, why I wasn't down with equity, why I was the wrong person, um, and why I was a white supremacist. That kept they kept using that term um well, against me. That as somebody who studies rhetoric, that's my main research interest. Like, I, it's amazing to me what's happening this term because, and I'm sure you've you've had these same thoughts, but that term should mean something, right? Because it it should maintain sort of a powerful stigma, right? But the way, like, I've been you know called a white supremacist many times at my institution, and what they really mean by that is you are a conservative who doesn't agree with us. Um, and, and the, the messed up thing is like, at this point, honestly, like, I don't really care if they call it to call me that anymore, because it, at this point, it means nothing. Right. And the fact that black women or black men are getting called white supremacists means you've, you've, they've drained the term of whatever power it had. And the sad thing is, is they're actually undermining their own aims is they want to use that term still as a very powerful reprimand um, or rejoinder to somebody, but they use it in such absurd situations that it, you know, it just, it, it can't do the work they want it to do anymore. I read that you um, also, uh, let's see. Um, I think that you got into something because you called into question whether we should capitalize black when using it as an identifier. Uh, but um, and typically the argument is white shouldn't be capitalized. And I think your argument was like, well, if we're going to capitalize one, maybe we should capitalize the other. Was this another example of a thing that became a thing? Yes. And I just I, I want to clarify just to step back to, to what you mentioned about the white supremacy thing. Yeah. Um, I don't identify as a liberal or a conservative. 
um, are a Republican or a Democrat or any of those polarities. Yeah. I never have um, and never will, you know, subscribe to any of those like labels. Um, but what I found out because I, I attend and, and look at diverse perspectives and that's how I learn. So I started attending meetings hosted by my teammates and my supervising dean and things that were highly recommended. And I kept seeing a slide that they would put up because I still, I did not understand that what they were saying to me. I truly didn't until I started going to their meetings and I saw them putting up a slide saying white supremacy characteristics. Sometimes it would be like a poison bottle one. Sometimes it was just a list of things. Um, other times there was uh, one, it's from the work of Judith Katz, um, where, where she talks about, um, it's like a blue and white, um, you know, version of, of uh, what is white supremacy culture. I've seen all of those used and I went and I looked to the sources to see what they were talking about. And that's where I found out about Tima Okan, uh, Kenneth Jones, you know, and all of these people and how they were redefining what white supremacy is like being on time, being objective, um, you know, putting things in writing, uh, all of these things are, are being redefined as white supremacy. And I, and I think that's, uh, something that's very dangerous. Um, I think it is something that gets people unfocused from the actual real danger of white supremacy and what it really means. Um, and, and, and this is what we're doing when we're, when we're recasting and reframing language and words and the, in the classical meaning of them into this neo speak, um, which is, which is deeply problematic because it's, 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 it's muddying the waters. And I think I just got off track of what you asked me, Adam. I'm sorry, but I had no, to step no, back. That's all right. We can go down, we can go down that. <laughs> I mean, I think that, um, that, uh, you're, you mentioned in your compact article that that claim that something like being on time is an inherent characteristic of whiteness you noted that it's actually racist and i think that you know like what you're saying is 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 not only is it sort of putting all white people like not acknowledging the diversity among that group but it mm -hmm. implies that the essence of blackness somehow is to not be on time which right. sounds very much like a racist statement right in other yes. uh, in other contexts yes yes and that's something you know, when I read uh, John McWhorter's work, Woke Racism, um, and he talked about the paternalistic language that's used, you know, um, in certain circles, um, I, that just resonated with me so much because I was there and living it when I, when I got his book. And I'm like, this is what's going on. It was like an eye opener for me because, again, I'm trying to figure out what rabbit hole have I fallen down, you know, as I started to experience the, these various, I call them disagreements. Some people are like, no, these are more than disagreements. Like, um, you know, when we talk about the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Center um, and the, the how an office teammate uh, brought in that, you know, white people are coming and uh, they're complaining to the administration and saying that we're not welcoming to them. Um, and And then, you know, my team started to talk about that and say things like, you know, well, that's fine. We're not trying to be welcoming to them. Uh, we're decentering whiteness in the center. This is a center for people of color. And, you know, and as I'm sitting there, unfortunately, I'm someone, everything shows on my face. Like I'm not a poker player. Right. Um, and I guess they could see that I was like, I was like wincing, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, like, because they were all like saying, yeah, we're doing it on purpose, basically. And this is why we're doing it. And, and they were like, what do you think, Lee? And so I told them what I thought and the response, which what I thought was, 
if this is a center for LGBTQ plus people on a public campus, it should be open to every person on the campus, whether they identify as LGBTQ or not. It may be someone who just wants a resource or a book or a place to go. And I said, I definitely don't think we should be saying that it's for people of color only and that white people aren't welcome there. Um, I said, why are we excluding a whole group of people based on the way they're racialized? And everyone shouted at me and shouted me down and said, you're talking about destroying the history of BIPOC people and, you know, the progress that we've made before you even got here. You're standing on the shoulders of giants and you don't even realize the work that's been done to make this space. And I was told, you know, white people have the rest of the campus. This is for us. And I'm like, well, this is for us. And us means all of us. So it was clear to me, like, really early on, this was an early conversation. I started in August. This is like around October time that these kind of discussions were happening that made me start to really want to figure out who was I surrounded by um, and what were they meaning um, when they when they were saying and doing certain things. And I had to get up to speed really fast um, to, to understand, you know, where I had landed uh, because this wasn't in the job description. This wasn't in the, the promotions or the, the sleep communications, you know, that are out there when you research a, a job, right? Like I researched it. So it's not a matter of like, I didn't, you know, research or I got in and I switched up. Like I got in, I was me. I was always my authentic me, you know, um, and the, I was just hammered for being who I am. So this is one of the things in the the brief conversations I've had with you and and talking to you so far today that fascinates me is that you say, geez, I didn't know what white splaining was. I had never heard this term before. I I wanted clarification on this or that term. And it seems to me, and maybe I've just been in a university for too long, but (laughs) these are just like boilerplate, like, you know, it's interesting to me that you could have been in and around education in an urban environment for years and to not have encountered these terms, is it really like not part of the dialogue in K through 12 in LA? Like, is that? I don't know about now, Adam, but when I was, you know, working um, in East LA public middle schools, no, this absolutely uh, was not um, part of what we would say to each other or ways that we would act. I never um, and I've worked with many teachers and many different organizations. I've never encountered uh, the hostility, the name calling, and the bullying um, that I encountered at De Anza. I, I've never seen educators act that way to each other. I really haven't. And and it makes me sad because if that's how we're treating each other, imagine what we do. You know, everyone always says, when my classroom door closes, I do what I want to do, no matter what that training said or this or that. What happens when the classroom door closes? What if a student's sitting in that classroom and they have a different perspective or, you know, they they just have a question about what's being said? How are they treated? Are they name called? Are they bullied? Does their grade suffer if they don't agree and align with what's being said, you know, by particular? And this isn't everybody, but there's a there's a group um, and they're very they're very strongly embedded in the key structures of the college at this time. And so. What happens to the students there? I'm I'm deeply concerned about that because if that's the way you act, you know, with a colleague, imagine the power differential, you know, with a colleague, you should be on equal footing, right? Um, and you should be able to have a, a, a disagreement and still work together. That's how I've always seen things. I'm not saying like equity and diversity and, you know, um, 
inclusion work has always been like rainbows and unicorns or anything like that. It's always been difficult. I'm used to working through and with opposition, adversarial relations, you know, that's part of it, but not where we say, where another group says like, you shouldn't exist as a person, as a human, as, as a teacher, as anything, like we want you eliminated because you're, you're, Think, thinking different and encouraging people to think different than what we're trying to promote. That's what happened, you know, in this space. And that I've never, never, never encountered that in, in any of my consulting work, you know, teaching work. Uh, this was a very unique situation uh, you, in, in all the ways you wouldn't want it to be. <laughs> prior to 2021, you weren't employed by a university though, right? You were still at K-12 at that time? Oh, no, 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 no. I was employed um, in higher ed from the time I got my doctorate in 2009. Um, You made it that long without, that that blows my mind. I was working um, as an adjunct um, and and, uh, many of the places that I worked, they were private Catholic universities um, because private Catholic universities at that time uh, were the only ones that were open to the perspective I was talking about around social justice uh, because they had been doing that work for hundreds of years. Right. Now everybody's on the wagon, you know, and claiming that that's what they do. Um, but this, these were institutions that were deeply re- rooted and steeped in long traditions of working around social justice. And they were amenable to my way of working. And, and I call it holistic teaching and learning, whole person um, teaching and learning. But a full-time position never manifested. So for many years, I was adjuncting, 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 teaching and teacher education programs, um, doing the work of a full-time faculty member without the compensation and the benefits and so forth. That explains a lot, though, that where you were then was sort of Catholic and religious institutions, because I they had, are very committed to social justice in what they call mind, body, and spirit. They mean it yes. in the in the uh, in the non-ideological way right. you and i got our doctorate the same year i got mine in 092 but i went straight to a a public secular university and it was mm-hmm. clear to me even then that the the seeds of this stuff was already sown mm-hmm. 2016 with trump watered the soil and dropped a lot of fertilizer and then and then 2020 the 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 reaper showed up mm-hmm. um <laughs> you know, and and really, it's it's since 2020 where you know, like I hate I hate to say it, it's raw, but like many academics are on the left, and most academics who were already strongly on the left just went off the deep end with this stuff, right? In in my opinion, and that was, um, you know, it it's the 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 turmoil in the universities is not because of the three conservatives that are on campus, right? It's because of the the hordes of of woke loons. Um, And this is one thing that I wanted to talk to you about too, uh, because you seem, um, and I've had a few people who I would say are are similar to you on this, on this little podcast. And that's that you are what um, a person who has a side of the fence might call a fence sitter, right? In other words, you are very much about kind of, I am not going to choose a side. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a progressive. I'm not. And that's important to be able to do sort of work of reconciliation. But for people who are in the fight like me, sometimes I think 
It's people like you that people like me need to win because until we get you to pick the side, right, then the other side's going to win because they've just gotten more. Um, and my question is, is, is as somebody who seems to be stridently and consciously moderating these different forces that are either pulling you to this side or pulling you to, to that side, how long do you think you can maintain that? And is there a space anymore in the university for what we might just call sort of centrism, right? Or is it just, uh, is, is the, the space, it, it has the moment of opportunity for that set of viewpoints passed in, in some important way. Are we beyond it now? And, and I, you know, I, that's a pretty personal question. So apologies in advance, but. No, I mean, um, I, I, I welcome questions. That's how we learn, you know, in, in dialogues, how we, being in community and talking is how we, you know, can uh, better understand each other. Um, I know it's maddening for people to not subscribe to or, you know, label myself in those um, political terms um, or in the terms that are commonly known. Um, but there are words that can describe me, like, and I know some people need those to latch on to. So I always tell people, like, if you need a word to describe me, I'm a scholar. Um, I am a teacher. I'm a learner. I'm a humanist. Uh, those are labels that I've always, um, you know, uh, gravitated towards and accepted as a description of myself. Um, and I feel like, uh, those are important. Um, so even, even saying left, right, center, like that's, that's a label, <laughs> you know, right. um, and I reject all of those. Um, and I think that, that those labels and the obsession with them, uh, just like the labels and obsession with race, um, or with gender or with other things, um, they, they cloud the ability for us to really, truly in an authentic way, listen to, hear, and dialogue with each other. They're great for debates, like for bashing things together um, and trying to prove superiority of a point, you know, and discussions. They're good for tearing things apart and, you know, um, engaging in those exercises. But I'm focused more on dialogue and dialogical understanding and interchange. That means I'm looking for creating flows of meaning through and between humans. Um, and that's the focus of my life work in the way that I teach and learn. Um, so, you know, I, I think that those are great skills to have, discussion and debating, um, but I'm more dialogical. Um, and I think that that's what we need to move towards uh, because all of the bashing together and tearing apart is bashing us together and tearing us apart um, and what's going to be left at the end. Um, I, I hear like different groups and camps and so forth, Adam, and they talk about like, you know, they're wrong and they're destroying everything. We're going to be led to like our end if we listen to that. And like everyone's pointing at each other. Right. And it's like, but where are we getting, you know, um, what happens after the destruction? Like, uh, um, what about the rest of us who, who weren't pointing or doing any of that? And we were just trying to be decent people, you know, with compassion and, you know, um, empathy and, you know, all of these other things that are, that are important that could be ways out of the mess that we're in. Um, so I, I think we've, we've got, we just have to start listening to one another, um, and really actively listening and, and taking a more inquiry based approach. Can I just say something, Adam? Yeah. A lot of people 
at De Anza. Right now, they're pushing this thing called cultural humility. Um, and this is part of that ideological, uh, you know, neo-reconstructionist ideology to make everyone feel guilty. And that you need to be more humble and learn about cultures. I think what we need is intellectual humility. That's where we all can say, like, I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. We're just humans, you know, trying to navigate all these things. Um, and, 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 and it's okay to have a different perspective from someone else. Like me and you being different, that doesn't mean I have to say, all right, Adam and I, we had this agreement. I'm going to destroy his career. I want him to never work again. And I want to make sure that, you know, no one ever hears his voice. Put him under a rock, like literally, right. you know, and that's the violence that we're doing to one another um, from different perspectives. And it's like, that has to stop. We can't, we can't keep doing that. We're all going to be under rocks. <laughs> like what's left? <laughs> okay. So let me give an answer. And if if you want, you can criticize this one. I, I've got thick skin, right? But my argument, you say, what happens after the destruction? Well, I would say, and I would liken your perspective to Dave Porter's perspective, who I've also had on the program. Dave was fired by Berea College. Um, and afterwards, He's still very open to sort of Title IX as a well-meaning sort of thing, of DEI as potentially well-meaning. You mentioned SEL at the beginning of our conversation. And to me, what interests me about this is, from my perspective, and I don't mean to to claim a victimhood status for you, but you both, in my opinion, have been victimized by the universe, right? The, the, they have not treated you fairly or rightly. And, and maybe this is just a characterological thing like me. I don't think that these people are capable of doing it. They cannot be convinced or persuaded, right? And for me, I'm one of the people who, so what we do is we rip them down and salt the earth. And you say, what happens after that? And I say, what happens after that is we have dialogue again. Then you and me can talk and we can disagree, but like, we'll have, who will be left will be the people who can stand to hear something that they don't agree with. Um, and, and <clears throat> what fascinates me, and it makes me think that you must be a really good person, you and Dave Porter, because you've been through this ordeal and you have not turned, you, you know, your fury towards these things. And so I guess my, my question for you is, I suspect that you still think that DEI could be imagined and deployed in a way that doesn't just amount to left ideological activism, right? That it, that there's something redeeming in these ideas. I looked at free black thought, uh, I think yesterday, I think one of the, the, um, headlines there was social emotional learning. Is that ideology or is it a real thing? Right. And, mm -hmm. To me, my perspective would be all these are just different words for the same thing. And what, what that's, that, what that thing is, is sort of stealth Marxist left ideological activism. Um, and what interests me is that you are able to experience that end of it and still see redeeming qualities in these things. Um, and so my question is, am I right? Do you still see that there is there are redeeming characteristics to what we call DEI, to these sorts of things? And if I'm right, that you do see redeeming value here, what's your plan to maximize that, to reclaim these things from, from the ideologues? 
That's a big question. Um, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me humbly try to address that. Okay. Um, you know, and I have been asked that. I really think, so I can only speak from the California Community College perspective, because that's the system where I've been exposed to a lot of this. Sure. Um, I think there should be an audit done of the system writ large, because there has been an explosion of these um, consultancies, positions, titles. I mean, if you just look since, you know, around 2020 or shortly there before that time, it like they've started popping up everywhere. Um, and some of these are um, faculty director positions and which I think is from my lived experience um, is something we should never do again. Um, I think that no singular faculty member should be charged with leading an institution-wide transformation from the positionality of a tenure-track faculty member. Um, it, it's just, it's it, it's nonsensical. It doesn't work. Um, I'm living proof of what happens when you try to do any kind of transformative work from that positionality. If someone on your tenure review committee doesn't like how you're doing it or what you're saying, or think that you're supposed to represent some ideas with fidelity that they've never told you, and you have to kind of figure out what that means, um, that's problematic. So this position, if it does exist at other community colleges or wherever as a faculty position, shouldn't exist. Um, it should be a presidential cabinet level. You, that's where you lead institution-wide transformations, not from the trenches. Um, and, and it's clear, you just can't. I even have people, Adam, who would tell me, you know, Lee, we love you. We love what you're doing. Just be quiet. Be quiet and make it through tenure. Don't ask any questions. Just, you know, shh, and, and you'll make it through and then you can ask all your questions and do things. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to be quiet, but I'm leading a transformation. Never ask any question. And there's things coming down rapidly because there's a seize the moment kind of attitude in place right now. And yes. there's a rapid advance. Um, Usually we used to say things move slow in education. No, things are moving like so fast that if you look away for a moment, you look back and you're like, oh, is this my school still? Like what happened? You know, what are we doing? If that's our new mission, you know, it, it's moving really fast. Um, so I, I feel like there needs to be greater oversight. And that's why I'm speaking so much. That's why I agreed to come here. That's why anyone who wants to talk to me, some people have criticized me about you talk to this person or that person. Does that mean you're, the, you know, I'm like, no, I'm talking to whoever wants to shine a light and, and get some, a floodlight onto this. So people in the community become aware because these are public schools. We should be behaving as public servants. That means we serve everyone and every diverse viewpoint that's out there, not just one. And if they're, if these offices are being used for that, they should be shut down. They should be shut down absolutely because that is wrong. <laughs> um, and that's not what public schools and public education is for to advance a singular ideology. Where are we heading to with that? When we start to just focus on equality of outcomes, what's the end game there? It's something that I don't think any of us will want to live in, in a system, in a society that's that way. So I think it's if it's advancing a senior ideology, it should be shut down. People should know about it, um, and and they should say no. Don't spend my tax dollars that way. Um, I'm not feeding into that for you to indoctrinate people. Indoctrination should not be the purpose of, of public education, or private education, or any education. Um, from my perspective, 
Um, I think that you should always have multiple perspectives. And if you cannot do the work in a way that is inclusive of all the diverse ways of doing it, and now we have people like myself, people like Eric Smith, people like, you know, the folks at Free Black Thought and other organizations who are saying there are other ways. Here are some of them, you know, start widening the approach and and using some of those pedagogies and tools that we are identifying um or if you're unwilling to do that then start telling people at this institution we are working from a critical social justice um you know perspective uh, if you want your child to come here they will be classed as a victim or oppressor uh you will perpetually be in that and you'll be in the perpetual struggle welcome in you know <laughs> that's what should be done <laughs> there should be honesty and i don't disagree what they're doing and, and if you can't name it and be honest about it and you're hiding and, you know, doing it in the dark, like people like myself and others who are now standing up and saying, mm, you know, no, something's off. We're going to shine a light and it's going to come to light. You can't keep working in darkness and using fear and intimidation to make these rapid changes. Um, people are going to get tired of that. People don't want to be afraid every day when they come into work or go to school. You know, they want to be welcomed and feel like, you know, I can be myself. No one's going to cancel me or, you know, try to ruin me <laughs> for making a statement or, or even saying something like that I later change, you know, or, or have a change of heart about like. Or even just to be to... wrong, yeah. even just to be wrong, <laughs> right? It's, it's okay to be wrong. Um, yes. And, and, you know, the, a little bit of forgiveness, right? It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to have some of that either. I didn't even think of it until you mentioned it, but I agree with you. And if, I don't know if there's any graduate students who are listening um, or who will be listening, but yeah, like they should, if they're going to have a faculty member do the work that you're doing, it should absolutely be a tenured person. They should not bring a person in, especially <laughs> from outside of the institution Put them on the tenure track and have them be doing the stuff on day one. That is, that is a recipe for at least failure for the person who is who's coming in. Yeah, yeah. I dare say there might be some liability on their part. Um, <laughs> you know, I I can't say for sure, but yeah, um, I've had you for a while now. Um, but I guess I'm tempted to ask, and you don't have to answer if you if you don't want, but. But uh, like, what's what's the plan from here on out? I mean, at first, when I talked to you a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, yeah, there goes her academic career. But I really don't think that that's going to be the case for you. I think that what you said, there's a space for in academia. And I think that the person that you've shown yourself to be in the work you've done in the last few weeks, have you gotten job offers already or? There has been an outpouring, Adam, of support. I've gotten like literally hundreds of emails from people like saying, this is happening here, or you need to come to my, you know, college and help us out. And there's a position opening up. They just left. We want a new director in here that's going to do this, what you're talking about. Like the other person was doing something different, you know? And, and so uh, there's been an outpouring of support that was unanticipated. I'm truly grateful for it. Um, because, you know, I, I, that anyone even cares that the, the tragedy that happened, you know, like, um, and, 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 and the terrible things that took place, um, you know, I'm able to move forward and, and feel like I'm buoyed by support, um, and to keep sharing my story because of the outpouring of support that I've, um, received. And I'm thankful for it. it it's like very humbling. Um, and that people feel comfortable to share with me. Uh, what's funny, people did tell me, my mentors, Lee, if you take this public, 
kiss a goodbye. Like you will not get another tenure. Like I was told that and I had to weigh Adam like, what do I do? Do do I just like quietly fade into the night and they erase me, which has already started like the websites being scrubbed and, you know, like I'm being erased um, and everything I accomplished is being deleted as quickly as possible. And so it's like, do I let that happen? Or do I actually say, hey, I'm going to tell, tell my story and I'm going to share it. And I took the risk because everything had been stripped from me, my livelihood. I mean, June 30th, health insurance, you know, my job, everything is gone. Um, and so that had been ripped from me. So in a way, it was like I had nothing to to lose. <laughs> like I lost everything. Um, and, and I'm laughing, but it's like, it, it, that's all I can do. I'm not going to sit here and cry and be like, <laughs> you know, like I literally lost. I had nothing to lose. And I said, well, then fine. I will tell all and I will share with whoever wants to talk to me. And I didn't expect that there would be like this embracement um, and people saying, wow, this is what we need. <laughs> we need fair mindedness. We need to be able to talk to each other. Like this is what's missing in trainings. I've been told about so many trainings, not just in education. I've gotten contact from librarians, um, civic leaders of like of nonprofit organizations. This is spreading everywhere. Um, and we all have to get a handle on it and start pumping the brakes a little bit. And naming what we're seeing and saying, okay, when you say racial equity, now what do you mean? Are you talking about neo-reconstruction? Like, I'm hoping the things that we're doing around the naming is going to be helpful to people. Just, just push back a little bit and say, like, let's be clear. When we're talking about our anti-racist plan, what do we mean as an institution? What ideology are we working from? Are, are we making it multiple? If we're just pushing one, let's be honest about it. And let's let the marketplace of ideas, if you will, decide what's going to survive uh, that exposure. I need it. It needs to be exposed. That's what needs yeah. to happen. And the thing is, is a lot of these people are embarrassed of it. Once it's brought to light, they back right off of it because all they're really doing is playing a, an internal game of virtue signaling. And that when people who don't spend 40 hours a week on a university campus hear this stuff, they're just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but what you just said reminded me of one question I've been dying to ask you too. Um, I've seen you use the term, or heard you use the term, um, neo-reconstructionist a few times. And the term that I've used in the past for this kind of thing is neo-segregationist in terms of the, the race essentialism. But I'm interested that you use that term. It seems very deliberately. It seems you prefer neo-reconstructionist. What is it that you, what, that you think that term captures? So when I um, coined this term in my little article with Free Black Journal, Free Free, free Black Thought, um, yeah. it was really trying to separate out. You know, um, there was a positive movement of race reconstructionism. You know, where we where people were trying to recast race in a positive light, like as a as a response, right, to um, other societal pressures or perceived societal uh, societal pressures around race. Neo-reconstructionism is referring to a negative and destructive understanding of race and race relations and how we should interact with race and uh, racism and so forth. Um, it, it's captured in the work of people like Ibram Kendi and uh, Robin DiAngelo. And there's pedagogies that go along with that um, that I also um, identify as being destructive when they're used directly to students. Um, it's not appropriate to, to tell 
second and third graders, you know, um, that they're victims and oppressors and, you know, welcome to the class. You know, this is who you are, Johnny and Jill or whoever, you know, and this is who you will always be because of, you know, how you were born. Um, that's very dangerous. It's not developmentally appropriate. And what we have is activism and activist centered uh, processes being embedded into pedagogy, people who have no knowledge of how to structure curriculum and, you know, um, learning experiences um, with, with the science of teaching and learning in mind. Uh, instead, we're just seeking to bring things from the activist field into the classroom and tell people that that's what they should be doing as teachers. And that's really dangerous. It's really concerning. Um, and we need to take a look. I mean, as I mentioned, I'm passionate about teacher education. What's happening in our teacher education programs is deeply concerning. <laughs> and we need to, t I mean, I was trying to think of a diplomatic word. Um, <laughs> you know, it's more than that. Yeah. That, that is the root of some of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Is the mm -hmm. education department. But so I, I follow your uh, neo-reconstructionist thing. But like I said, usually when I think of Kendi and D'Angelo, I think neo-segregationist. Do you have any problem with that term too? Or like, would you say that's that's fair to call it that? Oh, I, I think it's definitely, um, you know, I put uh, under the pedagogical tools that are being used, this idea, uh, Adam, of these uh, racialized affinity groups that you see popping up in schools, in board settings, everywhere. Um, that's segregation. That's putting people in groups based on their race and saying, you meet with your tribe and talk. And, and then when do we all get together and talk? I don't know, but you know, it's, it, it's, it's, that is segregation. Um, and, and many of the things that, and so I would definitely, I think I put that in, into my little chart, um, that I made, you know, um, any efforts to segregate people by, racialized terms um, is part of that neo-reconstructionism. And there's a lot of other, like critical social justice ideology, um, you know, um, critical race theory when applied and, and used in the way that we are putting people into a hierarchy of oppression and privilege based on their race. Um, right. You know, all of those things are are deeply problematic. And I put them under that banner of neo-reconstructionism because it's a negative reconstruction uh, of race um, and it's having negative effects in in the society at large because it's it's the only perspective that's being you know um, put out and without people being transparent about what they're doing. Well, I am really happy to hear that you've got these opportunities. It sounds like they are well deserved, um, and I applaud you for your boldness and Parisia and truth telling here in the aftermath. Um, and I thank you too for appearing on the program with me. Dr. Tabia Lee, um, formerly at least come June of De Anza College. And I'm sure that we will see her rise again. Um, thanks, Lee. Thank you so much.